Amen. Thank you, Corley. So we're going to have, um, no, it's just an, it's an honor to be able to speak today, um, especially with Christmas around the corner. And, um, and yeah, I, um, I'm just so honored to be part of this family and all that we've gone through in this past year. So just being in this moment, you know, here with you all here on Zoom, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's something really sweet about it. And just feeling the presence of the Lord this morning is really refreshing to my soul. So, um, so yeah, that's just kind of how I've been processing today. Um, so I, the message I want to give today um, is it's really centered around um, the, the story of, of Jesus' coming to earth. Um, but particularly, I want to look at his... Um, I want to look at the component of, of Christ being the light of the world, all right? So the title of today's message is Jesus, the light of the world. And when we say that term, the light of the world, you know, it can be a little cliche. Now we just kind of throw it around. But I want to go back into the Bible story and look at how this light truly came forth into the world and the context to which it came, all right? So we're going we're gonna to have fun. Um, you know, I, I went to, uh, some of you know, I used to work in, um, in, for a homeless shelter. And during that time, I actually got connected uh, with an organization that was, they were bringing awareness to um, homelessness, all right? And they were bringing awareness particularly to individuals who had, um, you know, there's, a, there's this, we can dehumanize those that are homeless on the streets, right? And so they wanted to kind of help make people aware of that. So one of the campaigns they did, it was a, a video campaign. And so they, they actually went out and they dressed people up as the homeless, right? And they put them on the streets and they positioned them in a place where their family members would walk by them, all right? So they set up multiple cameras. It was a whole ambush. And, and so, you know, it maybe it was a couple of different people in the film. Maybe it was like, a, you know, a son and a daughter and their mom walked by or some combo of family members, right? But these are close family members. And so it's really fascinating to watch this piece they did. And you basically, you're seeing this mom or dad walking down the street and the kids are literally there, homeless, you know, in, in disguise, if you will. And the parents either walk up to them or walk right by them and they don't even recognize them. Right. They they don't even pay them any heed. And so they use this to kind of get people's attention, you know, and realize, oh, my gosh, like, you know, I'm walking past these people. And and these are the people I love that I care about the most. And I and I don't even see them. They're just they're you know, they're blind. I'm blind to them. And so it was a really shocking campaign. Um, but it's it's interesting. Right. How if we're not looking for something. Right. If we're if we're if we're you know, focused on something else, or we have these preconceived ideas of the homeless or of what have you, we can miss the most important people in our life when they walk right up to us. You can miss it because you're not looking. You're not expecting. You're distracted, right? Or you have a preconceived idea of how things are going to go. And, and so I, I say all this because Israel was very much in this position, where Israel, right before the time of Christ, they've got all these promises, all these prophetic promises. They're going to be visited by the Messiah. They are going to be redeemed. And there's, I mean, 
just look up Jesus' prophecies. Like the Old Testament is chock full of them. God was making his people know that redemption was coming, that salvation was coming. But when he came, many of them missed the visitation. They didn't perceive how it would look, and they didn't realize that the very thing they've been longing for, the one that they love, the desire of the nations, was standing in front of them, and they did not see him. So when you put it in context, it's quite interesting. And um, I'll quote here, John, John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and it says, in him was life, talking about Jesus, and that life was the light of men. That's our theme today, light. He was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, what, did not comprehend it. They missed it. So I want to talk about how they missed it, why they missed it, and how that connects with us. Uh, John 1, verse 9 says, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. All right? So that's the, that's the stage that we're setting here. The true light, Christ, was coming into the world. So what did the world look like? We're going to go into the book of Malachi to kind of peel that back a little bit. Now, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And the book of Malachi is really interesting. So you have just a macro view real quick. You've got Israel right there. They've been exiled to Babylon, okay? So they've gone through this humbling process, but now they've got the, you know, the prophetic word of Jeremiah, and they start engaging to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. And under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Joshua, under the prophetic utterances that are coming forth at that time, they rebuild the temple. They reestablish Israel in Jerusalem, all right? So this is like pretty exciting moment, all right? Um, but in the context of this moment, right, I think, and, and I think scholars would probably agree with me, that they were thinking, okay, now, now that the temple has been reestablished, now that the, now that the Jewish people are back in Jerusalem, this is our moment to fulfill these many other prophecies as written by Isaiah. So you have multiple prophecies, right, about the coming Messiah, but also about the Jewish people being a light to the nations. So they're like, oh, man, we've got our temple set up. Now we're reestablished. We're seeing prophecies fulfilled. Now it's time for us to be the light to the nations. It's time for Messiah to come. Let's do this. So there is a sense of excitement, but, but what happens is there's a, a prolonged season of waiting, all right? There's a prolonged season of hardship and and so we see, I'm just going to cover this, um, uh, just some of these prophetic words that, right, they were waiting on, right? You got Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, and it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. So if you look at that verse, along with verse Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah 63, all these are talking about the Jewish nation being a light to the Gentiles, the Gentiles being non-Jews, the Gentiles being the nations, all right? This is the word that they have. But when you look at Malachi, things aren't going so hot, all right? So the prophet Malachi, here's a few things he said. He rebuked the priest. He rebuked Israel, and he said, he said, people have stopped looking for God. They stopped putting their hope in God. They stopped fearing the Lord. So he's openly rebuking them. He's saying, people are saying it's futile to serve God. What, what purpose is it to serve God? 
Nothing, nothing changes those that serve God and those that serve evil. They're all the same. So this is how the people were talking back then. Um, he says, the priests, they've been unfaithful to their wives. There's all sorts of injustice that's being allowed to flourish in the land. They're, people say, oh, um, you know, where is the Lord? Where is the God of justice? They had forgotten the Lord and separated themselves from him. And this is in the book of Malachi. So we're not even getting quite to the time of Christ. But this is the last book of the Old Testament. So he summarizes it by saying they're not honoring God in two ways. Not honoring him with their worship. And they're not honoring him with their gifts, with their offerings. They're not honoring the Lord. And so the, the nation is cursed. And so, so Malachi is bringing this strong warning, right? Um, so I'll just to give you. So basically, he, he lays out this warning right to the people saying, you're doing these things wrong. This is incorrect. But then he gives a but God and he starts laying prophetic promises that are going are about to be fulfilled <laughs> by about, I mean, 400 years later. Okay, that's about in the Bible. Did you know that? When they say about, it's like, oh, 400 years. Great, we're almost there. Um, so Malachi says, no. He says, no, God, he does love you, and he has chosen you. And he says, oh, Esau, God did not love, but Jacob he chose and he loved, and you are the people of Jacob. So he starts laying down and saying, no, this is what God says. If you go to Malachi 1, verse 11, he says, My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offering will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. In Malachi 3, 1, he says, this is the prophetic promise. I love this one. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi 3.1. So he says, I will send a messenger to prepare the way before who? Before me. I am coming. So they're, they're, getting, they're, they're getting these words, right? And, and that, we know the messenger now, we know is John the Baptist. So he's prophesying John the Baptist coming on the scene. He's prophesying God's covenant coming he's prophesying christ coming god the, the god incarnate christ the one who is all flesh and all god coming to the earth these are massive prophecies right so he's laying a rebuke but he's also laying hope on the people and then what happens 400 years of silence 400 years i mean between the old testament and the new testament you've got 400 year gap and you've got nothing from the prophets during this time so the few things we know about what happened during this time was the Greeks actually came and occupied Jerusalem, all right? They occupied the Jewish nation. So that, that sounds tough. Um, the temple was desecrated multiple times. That's pretty rough. And, and like I said, there's no words from the prophets that are recorded during this time. So God was essentially silent, not speaking, not nobody saying, here's what God's saying. Just totally, you know, kind of waiting on the Lord, figuring out what's going on. So you can imagine where their mindsets were. Just to give you a little context, 400 years ago, Manhattan was sold to the Dutch for $24. 400 years ago. 400 years ago, the Mayflower traveled to New England. This is the timeline we're talking about. You think you might not grow a little weary? You might start to forget some of the things that God said. So what happens in in people's hearts, right, when you, when you have to wait? What happens in your heart? 
when you have to wait. When you hear something, but you don't see the fulfillment, what happens? Where does your heart go? Where does it lead you? Do you think they might have forgotten their role? Think they might have forgotten what God said about even them being a light to the nations? About the Messiah being what they needed? So they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And then in one moment, God begins to speak. And how's it start? Well, it starts with Zacharias. Zacharias, who's the father of John the Baptist, is in the temple. And all of a sudden, Gabriel rolls up and he is petrified, which everybody that sees an angel in the Bible is petrified. I mean, the number one response of an angel is, do not be afraid, right? That's what they say. They're trained that way in angel training. Um, so he rolls up on Zacharias, and Zacharias is like, whoa, what's going on? And what does he say? The angel, Gabriel, quotes Malachi. <laughs> oh, that's the last time God spoke. And let me tell you, what they said in Malachi, it's happening now. And your son, you're going to call him John, and he's going to be that messenger with the spirit of Elijah that's going to bring forth this whole new era. Not just a new era, but the Messiah who is coming. This is massive, right? When you think about it, like the gap and the weight, it, it really adds more, it adds more weight to this moment with Zacharias in the temple. So then the angels come and they visit Joseph and visit Mary. And, and you know, we, we know the story, right? Mary now, the prophecies in, in Isaiah are coming true. The virgin has conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so things are starting to stir up. Then you have, you have um, Simeon and Anna. So Simeon and Anna are in the temple, right, when baby Jesus comes in. And, and they, the Spirit of God comes on them, and they realize, oh, my gosh, we've been waiting. It, it, it's interesting. They, both of them, it says they were waiting for the redemption of Israel. They were waiting. These people knew how to wait, and they held on to the promise. And when it came into the temple, they knew that's it. That's, that's what I've been waiting for. 400 years. But they were, they were waiting. They were looking. They were eagerly expecting and so when he came, they saw him, and they recognized him, even as a baby, right? Even as a baby. So things are stirring. God is speaking. But the people I want to focus on today who encountered Jesus right in his infancy um, were the Magi. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the Magi, also known as the wise men. That's who we're going to focus on today. So who are the Magi? Who are the wise men? Um, you know, sometimes we refer to them as kings, but there, there's no really understanding that they were kings. Um, they were likely pagan astrologers, right? These guys are, they're stargazers. They're, 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 they're pretty wise. They must have had some considerable wealth given the gifts they brought. They came from the east. So that's, that's all we know. They came from the east. We don't know where. Some say Persia. Some say it could be Babylon. So there's different, you know, theories, but we don't truly know. But, I mean, if you were God, right, and you were choosing who were going to be the first people that you're going to release this news to after 400 years of waiting, do you think that shepherds and pagan astrologers are the top of your list, right? Like, isn't that interesting? Those are the people that heard the news. Those are the people that got the insider information on Jesus, the shepherds and the pagan astrologers. It's very, very interesting. 
See, God does things in ways that we don't, we don't always expect, right? He operates in mysterious ways. We were singing about that this, today. God, let it be your way. I don't, don't want to do it mine. I want to do it your way. Um, so I have two daughters, right? I have um, my daughter, Lilu, who's three, and Fern, who's five. And now, sorry, I have three daughters. <laughs> it counts if they're two months old. I have a two-month-old, Florence. I apologize to you, Florence, if you're watching on Zoom. Um, so Lilu, she's getting a lot of dreams in this season. And I know Lilu has a call in her life to be a prophet. So I encourage her when she gets dreams, when they're prophetic, I say, Lilu, like, these are really good. This is from the Lord. This is part of who you are. It's part of who you're called to be. And so one morning, she has a dream. She shares it. And I know it's from God. So I'm encouraging her. And Fern goes up. Fern says, she looks at me. She says, she says, did you just say Lilu's a prophet? I said, yes, she is. She has a call in her life. She is. And she said, she didn't look like a prophet. <laughs> I said, excuse me? She said, she didn't look like a prophet. I've seen prophets. She didn't look like one. And uh, I said, could you explain a bit? She said, do prophets wear reindeer pajamas? <laughs> I kid you not. This is what she said word for word. And, I mean, Lilu was decked out in her reindeer pajamas, right? So I said, okay. Fern, God works in ways, mysterious ways. You don't quite always understand what he's doing and saying, but this reindeer pajama three-year-old is a prophet, I can tell you right now. Um, so I want to lay out today basically four points um, regarding, the, the light, regarding Jesus as the light of the world, all right? So these are four points about Jesus as the light of the world, and I'm going to get into each one. So here's point number one. His light meets you in the darkness. Point number one, his light meets you in the darkness. So Isaiah 9, we quote this a lot during Christmas time, right? We say, you know, unto us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. This is a messianic prophecy about Jesus. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. And it goes on and on. It's a powerful messianic promise, right, that gets fulfilled in Christ. And it ends by saying the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I think that's an important point. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. But how it starts is Isaiah 9-2. And it says, the people who walked, walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, unto them a light has shined. Isn't that powerful? The light has shined, but in the context of darkness. So look at how Jesus met, or look at how God met the wise men and the shepherds. Both were in darkness, all right? The shepherds were out with their flock by night. The wise men were out looking at the stars, and his star arose. It says the star of Jesus arose in the sky. Both at night, both unexpectedly, both God met them exactly where they were, right? He came to the fields. He came to the stars where the pagan astrologers were looking. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. God meets us where we are, and he meets us in the darkness. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, and just really dig into this story of the Magi and what they experienced, all right? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, here they are, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Well, you remember that statement, born king of the Jews. 
For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And he said, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, who had secretly called the wise men, determined that from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So we know, if you know this Bible story, you know that Herod was tricking them. He, he didn't want to worship Christ. He actually wanted to kill him and attempted to do so um, by eventually um, telling all the people that any, any firstborn son born in that region, two years and under, would be killed, right? So the, so the Magi shared to him the time that this star had risen, and he understood from that time that it was in a two-year period. So they're coming when Christ is a bit older. We don't know how old he was, but we can assume probably between you know, a few months to a year and a half, right? So that's the time frame we're talking about here. But I, I want to I highlight something. So the Magi, what do you think they experienced? Like, what do you think? It doesn't say a whole lot about them, but it's just interesting to think about what did they know? Because all it says is they, they saw his star rise in the east. It doesn't even say the star led them to Jerusalem, by the way. It, it led them later to Bethlehem. But they saw this star, and somehow they knew it was for the king of the Jews. So we don't understand fully what they knew, but whatever it happened to them, it gripped them. It gripped them tremendously. It wasn't just, you know, a nice star. Like, it gripped their heart. And how do we know this? Well, they traveled all the way to Jerusalem, right? And if they were in Persia or Babylon or one of these far east places, you're talking 400 to 700 miles. I mean, on camel, right? I can't imagine doing that. Imagine doing that on a city bike. Yeah, that's going to hurt. Now, try imagine on a camel, 400, 700 miles. That's like Chicago, and Chicago is like 700 miles. Cleveland is like 400 miles. I mean, just to give you a picture, right? So Herod, when he hears the news from the wise men, he is not happy about it. Because Herod, he's the, he's the king of the Jews. So he's, he's not liking this idea. So what does he do? He inquires of the chief priest and the scribes. Right? So those that understand the prophecies, that understand what's supposed to happen according to the Jewish scriptures. And, and they say, oh, like, gotcha. Like, we know, where the, we know where the king's supposed to be born. It's Bethlehem. That's the spot. It's only five miles away. Five miles to get to Bethlehem. So, you know, of course, the wise men, they, they're grateful for the information. They're like, let's get out of here. Let's go find the real king. We don't know who this guy is. Um... But the interesting point I like to make here is nobody went with them, right? The chief scribes, none of, none of, the, none of the religious leaders, certainly not, not Herod. He didn't go with them. None of them went. Why? Why can none of them go five miles? If this is the Messiah, right, don't you think they would have gone? Don't you think they would have inquired a bit more when these, you know, wise men roll in from the east? 
saying, hey, like we saw this star, we just traveled 600 miles. Nobody goes with them. As far as we know, they went by themselves. I find that very interesting. I wonder if there was a hardening of the hearts of these religious leaders, of, you know, certainly of the political leaders. They weren't aware of the, of the season they were in because their hearts had been hardened. They weren't, they, they'd forgotten the promises and they weren't even willing to go five miles. I mean, five miles is to Midtown from here. It's five miles. And they weren't willing to go because they didn't discern. They weren't, their hearts were hardened in the season that they were in. John Piper puts it this way. He said, when Jesus came on the scene, the religious leaders were indifferent to him and the political leaders were hostile to him. That was quite interesting. Political leaders were challenged. They were hostile. The religious leaders, they didn't even expect Christ to be who he was. They weren't aware. They were, you know, I don't know where their mind was, but they missed their visitation. But the shepherds and the magi, they experienced something that anchored their hearts in this desire to see Christ, to, to understand the Messiah, to believe that he existed. And they went and they saw and they went, and I believe that's, that's a word for many of us right now when we're in this season. We, there's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of trial. But you and I, well, hopefully all of us, some of you maybe not, we've experienced God in such a way. We've experienced Christ in such a way that no matter, no matter what the waiting looks like, the hope deferred, the hopelessness, the struggle, we want to go that five miles. We want to see him. We want to be with him. We want to be near to his heart. So there's something about when you've experienced Christ on that level, seasons of waiting and hardship, they don't deter you. They don't throw you off. Five miles is nothing. And, and so I just want to declare that over this company, too, that in this season, you, you're going to see Jesus, and you're going to continue to draw near to him. And, and where, where others maybe have fallen away, or they're hostile, or they're hardened, or they don't want to go, that's not going to be the case for you. We're men and women of the Lord. We, we have encountered him, and he will hold our heart, and he will continue to draw us near. So I, I just want to encourage you that we're the shepherd and the magi. <laughs> we're the pagan astrologers because they encountered something that was way bigger than their trial or their waiting. <clears throat> Hope somebody takes that out of context. What? You just said they were pagan astrologers. I'm sorry. <clears throat> All right, so number one, <clears throat> excuse me, number one, he, his light meets you in the darkness. Number two, his light is for the entire world. Isn't that good? His light is for the entire world. So they go to Herod, right? And Herod, as I said, was the king of the Jews, sort of. Um, he was lifted up as the king of the Jews by the Romans who had occupied Jerusalem. His father actually was, I think, in charge of the larger region. And so he put his sons in charge of these specific areas. Herod's the king of the Jews. He's intimidated by the new king. Interestingly enough, Herod was from the line of Esau. I didn't know this. But Herod was actually from the line of Esau. And, and if you look it up, his father was an Edomite. And so you have this inferior king, right, one who is not from the chosen line, who's, who's posing to be the king of the Jews. And then here comes Jesus from the tribe or from Jacob. 
He is, he is the chosen one, the root of Jesse, and he's stepping in to take the throne, to become the king of the Jews. And they even call him the king of the Jews later in Matthew and in, in the other gospels. Pontius Pilate says, hey, this is the king of the Jews, and that's his charge when they crucify him. And they put it over his head, and they say, no, no, just, Pilate, say that, say that he was, um, he pretended to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, no, I've done what I've done. This is what it says, king of the Jews. So I think it's interesting that Jesus, in his first coming, right, the nations come to him. The Magi also represent the nations. Get that? They're from the east. The, the nations come to him, and what do they do? They bow before him. They worship him. And so his first coming, that's what happens, right? But we all know, because of the Bible, in the end, when he returns, what's going to happen? The same thing. The nations are going to come, and they're going to bow, and they're going to worship him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The king of the Jews, yes, but the king of kings. The light to the nations. I mean, this is the fulfillment that Israel thought they could do on their own, right? That they thought, we're establishing the temple. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going to be the light to the nations. No, you need a Messiah to actually be the light to the nations. Not on your strength, but by, but by the spirit of the Lord. By the zeal of the Lord, Isaiah 9, he will accomplish these things. And here's the zeal, and his name is Jesus. And he shows up. And Matthew knows this, right? So if you read the book of Matthew, it's really interesting. It starts, chapter 2, the Magi, the nations coming. And how does it end? It ends with a great commission, go to the nations. So they come and they see and they experience Jesus. But now we come and we go and we give him to the nations. I mean, this is like God's brilliant plan. It's amazing. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. All right, so number one, his light meets you in the darkness. Number two, his light is for the entire world. Number three, his light causes you to worship. It causes you to worship. So Fern, my, my oldest of three daughters, let me get that right. She's, she was singing the song the other day. We were doing an Advent thing. We were singing songs. Um, Angels we have heard on high. Angels, I won't sing it because I can't sing. Um, but we're singing, the, and then it goes, glow. So we're singing the Gloria part. And then at the end, we go, Oria. And she goes, Corona. And I was like, where did you hear that line? That, that's not in the lyrics. She's like, yeah, it is. Me and all my friends sing it at, at school. When we sing the song, it's, it ends with Corona. And I was like, no, it doesn't end with Corona. And, and so it's just interesting, right? What we focus on, it starts to become our worship. Like, it gets mixed into our worship, all right? So these kids, you know, they're just you know, being kids, but we're, we're so focused on coronavirus. That's all we talk about, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's becoming part of the Christmas story. No, like, no. Like, he is our story. He, Jesus is what we focus on. And, and, and these wise men, I tell you, they were focused on Jesus. That's why I don't know what, what happened to them, what they experienced, but they were obsessed. They were consumed. They wanted to understand this King of Kings, King Jesus. All right? And I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 9. We're going to read the second half of the story. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the Magi, the star they had seen in the east went before them. Now, that's pretty cool, right? 
this star is literally moving before them five miles. It's pretty awesome. That's got to be a low star, right? That's no, like, how are you going to, anyway. Um, Till it came and it stood, here we go, it stood where the young child was. So it stood over the house, right? Because Jesus is a little kid. He's like younger than two. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Key line, exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. And here's where it gets interesting. What did they do? They fell down and they worshiped him. What did these men know? This was their response to a baby. They fell down and they worshiped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. See, the wise men had deep revelation. They, something had happened and they knew what they were encountering was greater than a baby, right? They, and I wonder what, the, what it felt like even in that room, right, where you have the divine in flesh. You know, it's a baby, yes, but this, this is God. <laughs> this is Jesus, the King of Kings. Like, what did that room feel like? And, and clearly, they responded bodily, with their bodies to what they had just walked into. All right? The King of Kings, Jesus. And I, I find it interesting that in Malachi, right, the issue that was given that Malachi prophesied against Israel was what? They didn't honor or worship, and their sacrifices, their sacrifices weren't pleasing to the Lord. And, and God says in Malachi, I'm, I'm going to the nations, right? So here you have the nations coming, and they offer right worship, right sacrifice, offerings to the Lord. So God's, he's making all things new. He's, this, is, this is the turning point of human history right here. This is it. Charles Spurgeon, he has a great quote on this. He said, when, when the Magi saw the child, they worshipped. There was not curiosity gratified, but devotion exercised. They weren't just curious. They were devoted. They were consumed. That's you and I, friends. We're devoted to Jesus. We're consumed by him. When, when we get in a company, like we worship him because he's worthy, because he's everything. He's everything. We won't be distracted. We won't worship lesser things. We'll worship Jesus with our time, with our money, with everything we have. And I feel like God's taking us back to, we've, we've talked about this forever. We can't stop talking about it, to first love. What did, how did you initially respond to him? How did you worship him? I'd encourage you over, over this Christmas week, get to that place, into your home, around your kids and your families, families, get to that place, go back to that place of that extravagant worship that, oh my gosh, he saved me, I'm restored, I'm redeemed. Exactly what those magi must have felt in that moment. Here he is, the king of all kings, the one who's going to redeem and restore all things. That place of worship, I think, is so rich and key in this moment. And I believe God's pouring out in a special way on his people right now on the earth. So when they reach Jesus, the star, which is pretty cool, right? And it's fun to talk about or think about, but it didn't matter anymore, all right? The star is no longer a part of the story because the star's very objective was to get them to Christ. 
And so they weren't outside like, oh, this is an interesting star. Like, look at this. Let's study this. I want to go see Jesus. I want to go commune. I want to meet this king of kings. The star was no longer a factor. And I want to encourage us in this season, let's not be enamored with, with stars, okay? With no matter what that looks like, right? Let's not be enamored with even like church or church leaders. Let's not be enamored with denominations. Let's not be enamored with political parties. I went there. Let's not be enamored with these things that they take away from the king of kings. They take away. And I'm not saying these things aren't important, but what I'm saying is the king of kings is there. Let's get off of these stars and let's go into the house of the Lord. I'm telling you, if you do this in this season, you will come out, you will come out shining bright. And if we're not communing and we're focused on our, you know, all this other stuff, we will, we will not be able to shine. We won't really be that, those lights shining to the nations. And, and, and this, is, this is 101. We have to get in, we have to draw near to the Lord. Enter in the house. Don't focus on the star. So when I got saved... I went, uh, some of you probably can relate to this, but I thought, man, like now I'm really arrived because, you know, I grew up in the church, but, you know, they don't really, they don't really get it. Like, I get it, you know. I've experienced intimacy. I've experienced power. I know God can heal. Y'all don't get it. And so I went back to my church, this was maybe a year or so after that, and I said, okay, I'm going to go and do this thing, but, you know, I really know I have it. I've got it. And I remember going into church, and we're in worship, and the presence of the Lord came so strong in that worship meeting, in that little church, and it rocked me. And I felt his love and his joy and his peace. And I said, God, like, this is not about this denomination, this is not about, it's about you. And here you are in the midst of your people. It, it's so easy for us to divide from others and say, we got it, they don't. We understand, they don't understand. It's not about us and them, it's about Jesus. And what I felt in that church, the presence I felt was the same presence that I felt in the new church I was going to that I, I really knew, knew the Lord and was doing the things of the Lord. Same presence. Because Jesus is what mattered, and he met me there just like he met me in my most broken state when I met him for the first time when I was 18 years old. So we can't let these, these divisions, and they happen in our mind, and they happen when we accuse and we separate. We can't let them in, all right? Jesus is the focus. He's the center. All right, number four. His light is what your life points to. His light is what your life points to, all right? You and I, we are like that star. We're, we're made to shine bright to the nations, all right? We're made to point to Jesus, to not take up all the focus and attention, but to point to him and say, you need to go in, you need to commune with that baby in that house, in that tiny town of Bethlehem. That's where you need to go. That's, what, that's who we are in God, a light to the nations. Philippians 2, verse 14 through 16. Here's what it says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of the Lord that I did not run or labor in vain. Don't you love that? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Matthew 5. So this is continuing. You know, we've read a lot of Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 14. Here's what it says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We cannot grow weary in this time of pointing to Jesus. We cannot get distracted and point to other things. And that's not going to help people. It's not going to help us. We point to Jesus. We are that star saying, come, behold. This is the solution. And, and it feels foolish to the world, honestly. There's so many issues right now. There's so much things going on. Jesus is what you need. Jesus is what they need. Don't stop pointing. Don't stop pointing for yourself and for your neighbor. Don't stop declaring the gospel of peace. Don't stop. And I say, oh, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. Jesus is what we need. It doesn't mean all stuff's not important. It is. But Jesus is what you need and I need. And this week, we've got, I mean, this is Christmas. Like, what a better time to share Christ. What a better time to get refocused, to get re-centered on him. And stop singing these angel songs about coronavirus. All right? Uh, worship team, you guys can uh, come on up. So I don't know about you, but around this time, I like to listen to, you know, all sorts of um, Christmassy songs, right? So I was listening to the, the one uh, Noel, and it's not the first Noel. It's the one by, I think Chris Tomlin wrote it, but you got a bunch of people singing it. Um, but it's so powerful. And, and the word Noel, all right, here's what it means, uh, the blessed good news. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's the description of the angels, right, as they're telling the shepherds what, that, that Jesus is now in the earth and that good news has come to all men. And, and the great joy that the angels exuded, this is all like captivated in that or capsulated in that word Noel, all right? So I want to sing, I want to, I'm not going to sing it to you once again. I want to tell you the lyrics and we'll let the worship team do the singing. Um, so here's the lyrics to this song. Um, Noel, Noel, come and see what God has done. Noel, Noel, the story of amazing love. The light of the world given for us. Noel, Noel. That joyful, that when you, when you think of Noel as that joyous, you know, rumbling, like, it really changes the, the song to me. I love the song already, but I love it when it's like, here's what we're proclaiming. The joyful noise of Christ is king. The joyful noise that, that says, come and see what God has done. Come and see his amazing love. Come and see the light of the world. We get to share, we get to do this. <laughs> we're a company that points to Christ. We're a company that rejoices in good news, and we won't stop. So today we have, you know, we've got lots of moral confusion. We have institutional corruption. We have national division, church division. 
even more reason, Noel, 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 come and see what God has done. Come and see what he's done in me. Come experience it for yourself. Come and worship the one who's due all the praise and all the worship. The one who died for your sins, for the redemption of your souls. Noel, Noel, come and worship the one. Everybody, if you could stand up for me. You all can keep doing that, that thing back there. So even on Zoom, if you'll put out your hands, I'm just going gonna, gonna to say a prayer over us as we close. So, Father, we thank you that you are the light. You are the light that has reached into our darkness. And I pray that today, right now, that you would remind us how you reached into our darkness. And for those of you that have never experienced that light, I pray that the light of Christ would shine on you today. I pray that your heart and your mind and your soul will be submitted to his lordship, to him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. We thank you, Father. Your light is not just for us. It's for the nations. It's for the nations. I thank you, Father, that you've revealed to the nations that you are Messiah, that you're using us to point to your light, the light of Christ, which reaches all people groups, all men and women that all would be saved. Father, we pray today we would see you rightly. We could respond to you in worship. We could respond to you with our very lives, Lord. Let our apartments and our homes be filled with worship, be filled with praise, be filled with rejoicing because Jesus, you are king and you are alive. You came and now you live in the world. You live, you live, you live. We thank you, Father, that you live, that you rule and reign, and you will come again to finish what you started. And Father, help point us, help point us to you, that we could point others to you, Father. Help us to be those stars shining bright, that the world would know that they're loved, that the world would know that Christ did die and was raised. That the world would know that love did come and shed his blood for them. I pray, Father, you would set us apart as a company that declares your gospel of peace. Draw the nations unto yourself through us. In Jesus' name, amen.